Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Not much new to share with you this week. Submissions, we're still open and looking for your dark and disturbing fiction. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions is where you'll find everything you need to know. This week, we're not straying far from where we were last week. In fact, I'd like to take a closer look at one of the Calgary neighborhoods we visited, the area of Inglewood, which also happens to be the oldest neighborhood in the city. With as varied a history as the area has, from a hub of activity for the city's elite in the early days, to a run-down bee-stroll for prostitutes and drug addicts, to a revitalized shopping district with trendy stores and restaurants, Inglewood's lived many lives over just shy of 150 years of existence. It's no surprise, then, that it's the anchor for its fair share of Calgary's supernatural activity. Tonight I'm going to take you on a walking tour of some of the most prominent haunts in the neighborhood of Inglewood. And I have to give credit to Johanna Lane of Calgary Ghost Tours for not only sharing these stories, but thoroughly researching them for historical accuracy, too. Our first stop on our walking tour of Inglewood is a restaurant I've always wanted to visit, but just never gotten around to. Situated in a beautiful old home, it's a quaint little place for a high-end meal. Back when the building was new, it was home to A.E. Cross, his wife Helen, and their three children. Cross was a well-known figure in the community. While he was a veterinarian by trade, he was better known for his roles later in life, as a local MLA and founding member of the Ranchman's Club and world-famous Calgary Stampede, the largest rodeo competition and outdoor fair in the world. But while public influence and wealth can solve a lot of things, One thing it can't control is nature. So when Cross's children became infected with diphtheria, the helplessness he felt was no doubt somewhat unfamiliar. 
What made matters worse, nowhere in Calgary seemed to have the medication his children needed. It had to be ordered from the city of Winnipeg, 1,400 kilometers or 870 miles to the east. Every day, Cross would leave the home at the crack of dawn, make the trek into downtown Calgary to the train station, and watch for the train to arrive. Each day, he'd wait and wait, pacing the platform or sitting with his head in his hands, foot drumming on the wooden plank floor. The last train of the day would eventually arrive, and there'd be no sight of his precious cargo. So he'd grab his coat and hat and make for home, head hung low, hands empty. And each day he'd be greeted by two faces peering out of the upper window, eager and hopeful. His wife and his mother-in-law, faces, I'm sure, he felt sick to disappoint. This continued for several days, until one evening he arrived home to find no faces at the window, and a palpable veil of sorrow draped heavily over the home. He opened the front door to the sound of desperate wails. Two of his three children had succumbed to the disease, and just hours before the medicine would finally arrive on the next day's train. During those long several days, Mrs. Cross spent every moment she wasn't tending to her sick children by the window, waiting for her husband to ride up with medicine in hand. And according to staff at the restaurant, it's a habit she carries on to this day. After setting banquet tables, place settings, and chairs for a special event in the upper room, staff often head back downstairs to take a break before the influx of guests. And as they'd sit chatting, resting from the morning's hard work, they'd hear from upstairs a horrible squeal and screech, the sound of furniture being dragged across the wooden floor. But whenever the servers returned to the room, despite the noise and commotion, they'd find only two things amiss. Two chairs, dragged away from their tables to face out toward the window, positioned for two people to peer out and keep careful watch on the street below. Our next stop in Inglewood is just steps away from Rouge Restaurant, a little unassuming spot where 12th Street crosses the Bow River toward the Calgary Zoo. Today, it's a nice little area with walking and biking paths, and by all accounts, it was no less picturesque and popular back in the mid-1930s, especially with one six-year-old boy named Donnie Goss. It was his favorite place to play with his friends, not far from his family home, but far enough it felt like a real adventure. Getting out in the brush and bushes of the riverbank made their imaginations run wild. Donnie would often be found there, dueling driftwood sticks like swords against his friends. It was just such a sunny afternoon when the two boys, in the middle of an epic joust, heard a rustle from the other side of the bushes. Curious, but a little freaked out, they froze. And that's when the man emerged. Afternoon, fellas, he said. You look like you're having a heck of a fun time there. Mind if I join you? I could sure use a friend. I've got sweets, too, and toys. What do you say, fellas? He seemed friendly enough, a wide smile splitting his face at the sight of the boys. But there was something just a bit off about him, something that seemed to slither and boil just below the surface. Uh, sorry, mister, Donnie's friend said. We're not supposed to talk to strangers. The man's face flashed briefly with something that could have been anger. But then the smile returned, 
No problem, little fellas. Tell you what. I'm sure I'll see you again. And next time, we won't be strangers anymore, will we? He grinned widely and gave the boys a wink. And true to his word, the man returned several days later. But where before Donnie was bolstered by the presence of his friend, this time he found himself alone. Hey there again, little man, the stranger said. You remember me, don't you? Donnie nodded. You look lonely. Let's say we go for a little walk. It won't go far. It'd be good to have some company. No one likes to be alone. Donnie shrugged and looked around. The man was right. He was feeling a little lonely. And what harm could it do to go for a little walk? Donnie followed the man down the pathway toward the bridge, then under it. All the while, the man continued to reassure him, dangling promises of candy and toys. Soon, they were under the shadow of the bridge, hidden from prying eyes. Here, let me show you something, the man said. Suddenly, the warm demeanor evaporated from the man's face. Without another word, and with a swift, fluid motion, the man produced a long, thin knife and plunged it deep into Donnie's chest. The crazed look danced flames behind the man's eyes, and Donnie's own eyes slipped from pain and surprise into dull vacancy. The man then dragged Donnie, lifeless, across the bridge to the small island in the middle of the Bow River, where he dug a shallow hole beside the children's playground there. He shoved Donnie in and hastily tossed dirt over the body. Even though little Donnie had little chance to save himself, his spirit has never been able to fully give up hope. Each year, paramedics are called to the spot multiple times by people reporting they hear the cries of a young boy begging for help. But paramedics and passers-by aren't the only ones to encounter remnants of Donnie. Across that bridge lays the back entrance to the Calgary Zoo, and security guards there will sometimes hear faint knocking on the back door. When they open it, though, there's no one. But the guards have become wise to the identity of the spirit. In a gesture of kindness and compassion, they'll often throw a ball through the gate for Donnie to play with. But no matter what direction or how hard they throw it, by the end of the day, that ball always appears back where it started, at the threshold of the gate, waiting for another toss. Our last stop in our tour of Inglewood takes us to All Nations Full Gospel Church. Being young and in love is an incredible feeling, and this particular young woman could scarcely imagine her good fortune in finding the love of her life, quite unexpectedly really, after moving to Calgary to attend teaching school. Her man was handsome and kind and cared for her deeply. And while the school had strict moral rules about what constituted suitable behavior for a young lady, the flame that burned between the two lovers felt absolutely unquenchable, capable of devouring any barrier that stood in their way. But when war broke out, and the young man was called to the front lines, that unquenchable fire turned to cold fear in her belly. Fear, it turned out, that was only too real. Just weeks after his departure from France, she received a message that he had been killed in action. The sorrow nearly broke her, but worse still, she just discovered that she was pregnant. Suddenly, the moral policies of her school policies she'd previously thought of mostly as pointless and ridiculous, 
became all too poignant. After discovering her condition, no amount of begging or pleading would save her from expulsion. Worse yet, her family refused to take her in. With nowhere left to turn, the young woman went to the one place she was sure had to accept her. The church, one that's now all-nation gospel. But despite her upset and desperation, the church too turned her away. She had lain with a man out of wedlock, they said, and the proof of that unholy union was now growing in her belly. She should be seeking penance, not support. Devastated and with all of her options exhausted, the woman made her way out of the church. But as she headed for the entrance, she spied another doorway, a doorway that led to a spiral staircase. She climbed and climbed all the way to the top of the church's bell tower. From there she could see much of the neighborhood spread out before her, a neighborhood that had once felt so warm and inviting, but that now shunned her. She cautiously climbed over the railing. Closing her eyes, and with one final deep, heaving sob, she threw herself from the bell tower down to the pavement below. Despite this last desperate plea for peace and freedom from the judgment that had become her life, it seems the young woman may not have escaped entirely. The bells of the church are sometimes heard to ring across the neighborhood at the strangest of hours. It's become such a nuisance that residents, especially newcomers to the area, have called to complain about the obnoxious noise at all hours of the day and night. The one problem with those complaints, though, there are no bells. They were taken out in the 1970s. These are only a handful of the stories that originate in this most haunted of Calgary neighborhoods. Part of me wishes I knew more about these stories when I lived there, and part of me knows that curiosity would have no doubt gotten the better of me, so maybe better I didn't, although it seems like an interesting way to spend my next trip home, don't you think? Let's hear some fiction. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Drew Rogers. A software engineer working in downtown Los Angeles, Drew is tall, quiet, and reclusive. People say he needs to be more present, so he's changing his name to Draw. You can find Draw on Twitter at DrubixCube. Children of the Night, join me for Draw I'm Drew Rogers. Monster Kin, a Tales to Terrify original. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nobody believed Thomas about the monster under his bed. But that was okay, because now it was dead. He did the brave thing to do. Used Rick's antique crossbow to do it, once the house had fallen into its nightly nocturne. Thomas's room breathed its slow, sleep-creaky breaths. The trees began scratch-tapping their branchy fingers against his window. Wind whistled through the metal bars of the knackery stables. Then came the growl. Low and long and rumbly, from beneath his bed and into his bones. Thomas was ready this time. He pulled the crossbow out from under his blanket, swung his body over the side, and aimed between two glowing red irises. Don't do it, the monster growled, rattling the floorboards. Or I'll eat your fingers. You said you'd do that anyway. A slow, monster sigh. Or the wind outside. Thomas couldn't quite tell which. Then... Yes. Yes what? Yes, I will eat them anyway. I'll shoot you. The crossbow trembled. Claws scraped angrily against the floor. I need to eat. Then eat something else. Like what? I don't know. Thomas tried to think of things a monster might find appetizing. How about something that isn't my fingers? I only eat fingers. Then eat your own fingers. That's cannibalism. I don't know that word yet. The monster tore at the underside bed stuff, snarling frustrated snarls. It means I only eat little boy fingers, like yours. Thomas shakily touch-tested the trigger. I'll do it, he said. I'll really shoot you. No, wait, the monster growled. Don't do it, because... Yeah? Because... Yeah? Why not? Thomas lowered the crossbow. A long moment passed. An important moment, the trees knew, and ceased their tapping and waited. The creaky room held its breath. Somewhere nearby, a coyote howled a long, pleading, ar 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 Finally, the monster said, Because I'll eat your fingers. And with that, Thomas had had enough. He lifted the crossbow, and this time, before he could change his mind, he fired. There was a loud thwack, followed by a long moment of snuffling and mewling and whining, a moment which seemed would never end. And then, finally, the light from those glowing red eyes faded into the dark. For the rest of the night, he gazed up at the ceiling, telling himself over and over again that he did the brave thing to do. A hungry coyote sat on a hilltop. A moment ago, she howled a question at the sparkly sky. The question, where's good food? She waited for a reply. When no answer came, she prowled back into the forest. The hungry coyote continued her search. Time was a lake, and Thomas a skipping stone, moving through the day and leaping over hours. One second he was on the bus, watching a spider web of leafless maples blur by. Then he shut his eyes, and when he opened them, he was in class. His teacher was barking at him to pay attention. The man stomped back and forth across the room, shaking the building, making the lights flicker and white bits of ceiling tile fall to the floor. He growled as he chalk-screeched math problems onto the blackboard. 
Thomas had bigger problems to work out. Problem one. He needed to get rid of the monster carcass before the scent of decay was tracked to his room. Before the whole world found out what he had become last night. A murderer. Second problem. The crossbow was still hidden beneath his blanket. That is, unless Rick already noticed it was missing. If that were the case, well... Thomas tried not to think what would happen. After another sleepy blink, he noticed the clock above the blackboard skipped forward five whole minutes. He was time-traveling, he realized, however slowly, and at random, groggy intervals, he continued to bypass portions of the day. Suddenly it was lunchtime, and Derek was taking a seat next to him, announcing his presence by slamming his food tray onto the table. Wanna know how chicken fingers are made? Thomas said nothing. He was thinking of potential hiding spots, somewhere like his under-the-porch spot at home. It was impossible to avoid Derek in a wide-open cafeteria. Well, first of all, Derek said, deciding to give a lesson on chicken fingers anyway, obviously unaware Thomas had stopped being friends with him weeks ago. They're not really fingers. Chickens don't have fingers. But get this. Demand for chicken is so high... The manufacturers can't even wait for them to grow into adults anymore. So they drop newborn chicks into these big blenders and grind them into paste. Derek made a loud grinding sound as he chomp slid a chicken finger into his mouth, barbecue sauce painting his lips. Thomas had just swallowed a bite of his own. He felt he was going to be sick. Nuh-uh, he said. And Derek grinned. Yeah, they grind them up. Beaks, bones, everything and they pour the chicken goo into molds to make it look like fingers. Thomas didn't finish his lunch. For the rest of the school day, he felt nauseated on top of sleepy, time traveling so slowly that it was almost no benefit. He wished he could control it, sleep blink his way backward across the lake of time, undo his murder. But you can only time travel forward. Everybody knows that. Upon arriving home, he found the crossbow and carcass where he'd left them. He realized then that he'd been hoping not to find them, that the whole thing would turn out to be a dream. But it hadn't been a dream. The crossbow was tucked inside his blanket. The furry form of the monster's body lay in the shadow beneath his bed. Thomas was still a murderer. Through his bedroom window, he could see Rick patrolling the perimeter of the property clearing leaves and sticks from coyote traps and setting down new ones. Thomas's mother would be in her room, asleep as usual. Or as good as asleep, staring glassy-eyed at a TV she wasn't really watching. Another glance to make sure Rick was still far off, and Thomas dashed downstairs and into the garage. He returned the crossbow to its hanging spot next to Rick's hunting rifles. He went back to his room and burrowed into bed. For a while, he stared out his window, willing the sun to slip further down the sky, for the world to sleep so he could get rid of the reminder of his mistake. But it wouldn't budge. The knackery barn door squeaked open. Rick lumbered out, pulling on elbow-length leather gloves. He opened the pig corral, hooked a pig, and steered it into the barn. A moment later, the pig squealed a few desperate squeals as if it knew what was coming. The sharp crack of club against skull bones sent sound waves across the yard and two stories up, vibrating Thomas's thin-paned window. Rick emerged, gloves dark and wet. He retrieved another pig, and the cycle continued. Making candy stuff. That's what Derek said last year when Thomas came to live at the knackery, when the two of them were still friends. That's how gummy candies get made, Derek had said. Knackers separate the carcasses into piles of skin and cartilage and bone, which get boiled and turned into gelatin. Gelatin makes candy chewy. Derek smiled his usual eager smile, biting the head off a gummy worm. Now Thomas threw his blanket over himself. He pressed his pillow against his ears, but could still hear the muffled squeak of the barn door opening and closing, the pigs shrieking their final squeals, the cracking of the club. Eventually, this horrifying rhythm hypnotized him to sleep. 
sleep was no escape. He dreamed of Rick escorting an endless procession into his barn, emerging each time the owner of fewer pigs. Oh, oh, oh! Nobody woke Thomas for dinner. He didn't feel like eating anyway. Plus, being asleep was like time traveling at will. Now the house was so quiet he could hear snowflakes drifting outside his window. Using an old hockey stick, he slid the monster out from under his bed into the light. Two horns corkscrewed from one end of the oily mass of fur. Dark streaks were smeared across the floor, reminding Thomas of another thing Derek once said. Sometimes when things die, they defecate. Thomas pinched his nose shut, feeling queasy. After pulling several trash bags around the heavy body, he mopped the floor with some of his least favorite shirts. He added the soiled clothes to the bag and tied it up tight. Then he tiptoed out of his room. The living room TV was on. As usual, Rick lay on the recliner, snoring and snarling in his sleep. Thomas dragged the bag out of his room. Down the creaky wooden stairs he went, lifting the bag up, off, down each step, quiet as a snowflake, then out onto the porch, where he pulled the door silently shut. After sliding the bag down the snow and mud-covered driveway, he came to the dumpster at the crossroad. He climbed in and pulled the bag up by its strings. Thomas stopped on his way back up the driveway. He turned back to the dumpster. Dear monster, he said, which didn't sound right, but he went with it. I'm sorry I killed you. It's just I was scared you were going to eat my fingers. I know you were hungry, but I need my fingers for drawing and stuff, okay? I'm sorry. The end. He wiped his eyes and started back toward the house, thinking the whole thing was finally over. Then a voice came from behind him. That was a very moving eulogy. Nobody was behind him. Nothing at all was around him, save for the dumpster in the distant woods. I don't know that word yet, he said to the nothing, maybe to himself, because he could have been imagining the voice. It wouldn't have been the first time. What, eulogy? Thomas tracked the sound down to a dumpster wheel, under which lay a flattened box of chicken fingers. The fedora-capped fowl on the box animated as it spoke, gesticulating with its wings. It's parting words about the deceased, like what you just did. Not professional by any stretch, but heartfelt nonetheless. Oh, uh, thanks. Thomas picked up the box and brushed off the dirt. The chicken man's beady eyes glanced around at the surroundings. I've never written a eulogy, but I'd be interested to try. Maybe I could help with the rest? The rest? Yeah. I assume you're doing the others separate, since you didn't mention them in your speech. Makes sense, seeing how they ain't dead yet. Huh? The chicken man paused, looking bewildered. I'm talking about the babies, kid. You don't know, huh? I can tell by your face. The monster you killed with your mother's angry boyfriend's crossbow. She was pregnant. Like, really pregnant. I could hear that belly wiggling all the way out here. Bet you thought it was tapeworms, huh? I used to get tapeworms. Thomas didn't recall seeing a wiggling belly under all that fur. He'd assumed, for whatever reason, that all monsters were male. His eyes welled up thinking of the monster babies he'd involuntarily killed. Wait, they're, they're not d dead yet? He shivered, finally feeling the coldness of the air. Nah, of course not. Takes more than oxygen deprivation to kill a monster. They breathe a lot more than air. Darkness, fears, nightmares. I'd say they have another day or so. Plenty of time to work on those eulogies. Falling to his knees in the snow, Thomas began to cry in earnest, tears pattering onto the box. Can I save them? The chicken man's eyes flicked around, following each tiny tear splash. I mean, yeah. Like I said, monster kind of resilient. 
Resilient? Means you can save them. Ah, jeez, kid, quit your blubbering, huh? You're making me soggy. I said they ain't dead yet. Okay. Thomas pressed the box against his shirt to dry it. But who'd look after them? You killed their mother, remember? Shot her in the face. I could do it. Thomas was good with animals. For one whole month last year, he was the caretaker of Tufton, his class gerbil. He could do it, for sure. The chicken man squinted skeptically at him. Then he squawked out a laugh and said, All right, kid, I'm going to help you out. You got to do something for me, huh? After this, you got to keep me someplace warm, deal? Deal. Okay, grab something sharp and let's get started. Snow clouds slipped sideways and set the moon free. It glowed bright enough for Thomas to see everything in the dumpster where he sat. He set Rick's skinning knife aside. A litter of little miracles gazed upward, eyes reflecting that big, bright moon back at him. Good work, kid. Steady surgical hand. I'm impressed. Six tiny monsterkin, five with the cherry luminescent eyes of their mother, and one with eyes like the moon, radiant and full and icy. Thomas named the blue-eyed one Blue. He couldn't tell the others apart, so he decided to name them later, once their horns came in or their fur patterns took on more distinguishing features. He transferred each of them to an old wooden soap crate. As he shut the lid, Blue snapped at him. Ouch! A row of red beads surfaced along his finger. They're hungry, the chicken man said. You'll need to feed them ASAP. Thomas took the crate of Monsterkin and the chicken man to his under-the-porch spot. He had never shown anyone his hiding place before, but he felt fine disclosing its location to his new, non-human friends. He held open the slatted metal hatch, sliding the crate into the hollowed-out area beneath the porch steps. Then he crawled inside. Thomas flinched as the hatch slammed shut behind him. He'd forgotten to be quiet. A moment later, the front door squeaked open. Thomas peered through the grate as Rick stomped down the steps and out onto the driveway, barking frosty obscenities into the night. With shaggy forearms, he hoisted his shotgun, scanning the area for the causer of noise. Look at him swing that thing around, the chicken man whispered, practically begging for something to kill. When no invader was revealed, Rick bared his fangs and growled. Looking equal parts angry and disappointed, he went back inside, slamming the door behind him. Thomas exhaled relief. He crawled deeper into the underneath. There wasn't enough room to stand, but he no longer bumped his head as he maneuvered around in the dark. He proceeded to turn on his battery-powered things. On came his two light brights, casting rainbow colors across the crawl space. He squeezed the tummies of his three light-up stuffed animals. A green frog, a red rabbit, a yellow duck, and spaced them apart. Glow-in-the-dark stars lay scattered in the dirt, absorbing the light and sending it back out. For a while he sat there, chatting with the chicken man. They talked about big words and the coolest animals, besides chickens, of course. They talked about time travel and the phases of the moon. Mostly they talked about monsters. Eventually his cardboard friend stopped responding returning to his default logo position. Went to sleep, Thomas figured. He opened the crate. The monsterkin were sleeping, too. He whispered, I'll feed you tomorrow, guys, and gently closed the lid. Then he opened it, said, Or girls, and closed it again. On his back among the glow stars, he waited for the muffled cue of Rick snoring above him. Thomas fell asleep but awoke hours later. He returned quietly to his room and crawled into bed. There he surrendered willingly to sleep. She found lizards. She found toads. She found all kinds of snacks. But nothing filling, nothing tasty good. Once again, the hungry coyote lifted her snout and howled. Once again, she waited. And once again, silence followed. A whole forest of foods and no sharers? Rude. She would have to keep sniffing. 
Rick was a lot of things, but wasteful, never. Instead of cereal for breakfast, Thomas had leftovers from last night's dinner. Grilled rabbit. The morning sun burnt its way through the winter air into the kitchen, stopping short of Rick's shadowed corner of the table. From that corner, Thomas could feel his leer, watching him as he ate, ensuring every bite was ingested. He tried to imagine he was eating something else. But what else was this chewy? What else lingered metallically on the tongue? Thomas's blood ran like glue. His mother stared her usual vacant stare, holding a dripping spoon. He couldn't remember the last time he heard her speak. She once knew every word in the dictionary. Too many words, Rick had said. That's why she started taking pills for her mouthiness, soon after they came to live here. And then her words disappeared. Fortunately, Thomas time-traveled through some of breakfast, but not before several minutes of eating in their usual silence, nothing but the occasional clinking of fork against plate, of glass against table. He was in the bathroom, after he time-traveled, on his knees, vomiting his dinner onto the tiled floor. They're not eating! Thomas held the chicken man aloft so he could see into the crate. The monsterkin had grown despite having nothing to eat, and their horns were starting to come in, big chocolate chips protruding from each furry head. The chicken man assessed the situation. When's the last time you ate someone's regurgitated food? Thomas was able to deduce the meaning of regurgitated by context. Oh, I'm no expert, kid. This is going to take some trial and error. Better get trialing before they start eating each other. That's cannibalism. Over the next week, he made several more attempts. He took the coins from his elephant bank and bought two scoops of kibble from the pet store up the road. The monsterkin pushed the food around the crate with their fuzzy muzzles, but otherwise showed no interest. They ain't kittens, the chicken man said. Monsters need live food. That much I know. Thomas went to the woods. He turned over rocks and collected pill bugs and crickets. Again, they showed no interest. Maybe something bigger, the chicken man said. Thomas returned each insect to its under-rock hiding spot. He found his own hiding spot at school, the boys' bathroom. Derek would never find him here. And it was quiet in the stall, a good place to think. Each day when he was finished eating, Thomas would read the dictionary definitions for monster analyzing the text for any tips on raising Monsterkin. So far, he had learned nothing. He tried a lizard he found scurrying up a tree. That didn't work. He tried snails and slugs. Not even a nibble. He even tried a bullfrog. No dice, the chicken man said. Bigger. Give him a meal, not a snack. At school, Thomas hid inside the crafts closet. Once the bell rang and the classroom was empty, he smuggled Tufton into his backpack. He didn't want to see the gerbil eaten. The monsterkin were carnivorous, and he was running out of ideas. Still, he was relieved when the creatures simply allowed the gerbil to huddle inside the crate with them. Maybe they need to hunt? The chicken man said later as Thomas let Tufton go inside the forest. At least you got to free this little fuzzball. He'll be happier now, not all cooped up in a terrarium. Not until later did Thomas learn that gerbils couldn't survive in the wild. He cried for hours then. They tried hunting. At night, Thomas gathered the monsterkin into his wagon and covered it with a tarp. He wheeled it into the yard. There was no lock on the barn door, and he entered without so much as a hinge squeak. Seven pigs were asleep in the slaughterhouse, but no longer. Thomas opened each pen. After a long moment of sniffing the air beyond the open door, the pig scampered out into the yard. He uncovered his wagon. The monsterkin climbed out. Eat, he whispered, and pointed at the fat pink things moving across the moonlit field. The monsterkin had lost weight. They looked to be starving. Yet all they did was stare at him, ten bright red orbs and two blue, as if awaiting instruction. In his hand, 
Thomas held a cracking club, but he couldn't bring himself to use it. He just stood there in the cold night as the pigs wandered into the woods. You're quite the activist, the chicken man said. Then he sighed. I'm stumped. Maybe verisimilitude is the key. And before Thomas could ask, it means maybe you need to act the part. You don't look like a monster. You don't think like a monster. They'd probably look at you and see a skinny little goof. No offense. Thomas put the monsterkin back inside his wagon. It wasn't easy. He scattered as he neared. His hands became bloody with bites and scratches. He left the cracking club in the field, covering it with dirt and leaves. The next day, he got home to find a hose running under the porch, attached to a noisy compressor. A dense white cloud billowed out from the entrance to his hideout. Rick had on a breathing mask. He stalked around the porch, growling something about noisy night critters and fumigation. Sometimes the killing was done outside. Usually if it was a large animal, like a cow or a horse, Rick would tie the animal to a post and use a rifle for the killing. He never fired more than one shot. It's smart to only use one shot, Derek once said. Ammo is expensive. A blast rang from the yard. Thomas lay in his bed. Through his pillow he could hear the reflexive kicking of the horse. That one cost-effective shot not always enough. Then came the chopping, cleaver-splitting muscle. Chop. 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 All the while, the compressor hummed as it pumped poison into his hideout. The chopping stopped. He sat up, looked out his window. Then came the sawing, serrated edge slicing bone. Saw. 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 He scrunched his eyes shut, willing himself to time travel. Nothing happened. As he lay back down, Thomas bumped his head against the wall. The world went quiet. He did it again, purposely this time. The instant his head hit the wall, all of the noises from outside went away. The effect only lasted a second, but it helped. He bumped it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Slowly, the sun dipped behind the mountains. Everything was covered in powder. It made his throat and eyes burn. He got in and out as quickly as possible. As he carried his monsterkin into the field, Thomas nearly stepped into a coyote trap. He stumbled, dropping the crate. Powder kicked up from the lid and into his eyes. After a long moment of whimpering and rubbing, he could see again. He opened the crate and carefully set the lid aside. Ten bright red eyes gazed up, wincing. There were blue eyes, somewhere in the crate, but they would never open again. They buried blue under a moonless sky. The chicken man wrote most of the eulogy, but left blanks for Thomas to fill in his own words. It was like a game they would play at school, except not for fun. Thomas read the eulogy aloud between sobs. This is how it went. Blue was a good monster, with short horns and a baby growl. To lose Blue is to lose a friend. The crate will never be the same. We will remember him or her fondly when we see the moon, when we hear small electric things, when we smell the dumpster. Wherever monsters go, we hope Blue is there eating. We will miss you, Blue. You made us all a little more blue. The end. It was impossible to concentrate at school. There was no silence between words, no space between one person talking to the next person talking. Thomas needed to think. If Blue hadn't been so malnourished, maybe he or she would have survived the fumigation. Thomas needed to feed the others before they all died. At lunch, he had two whole minutes of silence. 
Then his thoughts were once again interrupted as Derek's voice came echoing into the bathroom. My parents stay inside all weekend. He was speaking to Kenny, another boy in their grade, who Thomas could see through a crack in the stall. We can do whatever we want and not get in trouble. Not getting in trouble was something all boys considered as they planned their weekend activities. But with Derek, it was an essential part of the planning. And that's what he did, all through lunch. Planning. Just hung out in the bathroom and talked, and talked, and talked, and talked, and talked, and talked, and talked. Thomas began rocking backward and forward on the toilet, palms pressed against his ears, trying to tune out the chatter. That's when he time-traveled again. One huge jump. He was no longer in the bathroom stall, rocking forward and backward. Now he was in his bed, bumping his head against the wall. The taste of another unwanted dinner lingered on his tongue. His face was warm with tears. The sun was beginning to set outside his window. With each bump, Thomas's mind flashed like a light bulb, on and off as everything got briefly quiet. But the only noises that needed tuning out were coming from his own head. The thwack of the crossbow on the night he pulled the trigger. Derek's endless talking. The metal squeaking of Rick setting coyote traps. The chopping. The sawing. Thomas bumped and bumped and bumped. The silence wouldn't last long enough. He smacked his head as hard as he could. As the brightness faded, an idea came to him. He bolted upright. Moments later, he was sitting inside the dumpster, tossing aside the more recent garbage. He looked down at the monster carcass, eyes hopeful despite the squirming maggots. He must look the part. Of course. Everything he needed was right here. Hours later, Thomas pedaled his bike out onto the highway, with his wagon of monsterkin in tow. He rode into the approaching night toward Derek's house. This is a great plan, the chicken man said. You're a smart kid, you know that? Thomas was too nervous to respond. He sat in a shadowed corner of Derek's backyard gardening shed. Thomas had been here once before, the time they played hide-and-seek. He peered over his tarp-covered wagon, which he had quietly wheeled inside minutes before Kenny arrived. The shadows in the shed wavered as the boys outside stoked their bonfire. Can't we just make s'mores or something? Kenny said. We don't have s'more stuff. Derek squirted the fire with a big can of lighter fluid. He laughed maniacally as the flames roared. And can't we do, like, normal stuff? Kenny half-heartedly poked a stick at the bonfire, kicking up embers. Derek threw a rock at the flames. Normal is boring. Look, after we do this, we can do whatever you want for the rest of the weekend, okay? Kenny's face cycled through expressions. Finally, he sighed and said, Okay. Derek grinned. I'll get the carrier. You grab the steel drum from the shed. What's a steel drum? It's like a big metal barrel. The boys went in opposite directions. As Kenny neared the shed, Thomas's heart hammered. He ducked behind his wagon and shushed his monsterkin. A moment ago, they had been yipping and yapping beneath the tarp. Now, in obedience, they fell silent. Thomas held his breath. It smells in here, Kenny said loud as he entered. Thomas was used to it by now. The stench permeating from the pelt he was wearing. Animal hides were supposed to be cleaned and treated for several weeks before use. He knew this because Rick sometimes made pelts from the animals he hunted. But Thomas didn't have weeks to wait. He needed to look the part, the chicken man had said. Now he did. And Thomas vomited twice earlier in order to do so. But it had been worth it, he learned, the moment he slipped his arms into the slimy sleeves and pulled on his hood of horns. The monster can listen to him now, no longer bit and scratched and wandered, and they shushed when he told them to. The drum sat under a workbench opposite his wagon. Kenny tipped the heavy barrel on its side and rolled it out of the shed. Thomas finally exhaled. Derek appeared at the side of the house, 
holding a plastic pet carrier. As he neared the fire, Thomas could see an old tabby hunched inside, one cloudy eye reflecting the firelight. Pull up the lid. Kenny hesitated for a moment, but did as he was told. The too-trusting feline allowed itself to be set inside the open barrel. Derek snapped the lid shut. This is the fun part, he said, rubbing his hands together like it was time to open presents. I haven't heard this cat meow since I found it yesterday. Not once. Let's bet on how long before it does. Whoever's guess is closest gets to keep the skull. His fiery grin glimmered. Uh... Kenny's face was ghost white. I say twenty seconds. What's your guess? Uh, I don't know. Come on, Derek scowled. You're ruining the fun. Kenny swallowed. Uh, five? Five? Derek blurted and laughed. It'll barely be warm by then. But okay, five. Help me lift the drum. Each boy took a side and lifted. They shuffled their way to the bonfire. On Derek's instruction, they tossed the barrel into the flames. The countdown started. The hungry coyote padded into the field, moving around the snappy things she knew were there to harm her. Finally, after so much searching and sniffing, she smelled some actual good food. Here it was now, covered with dirt and leaves. She dug it out, but no, this was a wooden thing, long and blunt. A weapon? She nodded a bit. Yuck. It smelled like food, but it wasn't for eating. The hungry coyote whined, feeling defeated. But then, in the trees, a fat pink thing moved about. Good food. She dashed into the forest. A moment later, she turned the pink thing into a gorgeously glimmering feast. Minutes later, a howl came from the sky. Where's good food? Over here, she howled back. She was a polite coyote. She was a sharer. My guess is twelve seconds, the chicken man said. Thomas stood in the shadows, grinding his teeth. His entire body seemed to vibrate as anger swarmed within him, caged, stabled, fighting to break free. Beneath the cowl, his face dripped with sweat. Yet he stood frozen. Then a faint, hollow mewling sounded from within the barrel, and something inside him took over. Something monstrous. Thomas yanked the nearest gardening tool from the shed wall, the spiky one with the long handle. He threw the tarp off his wagon. The monsterkin growled violently, reciprocating his rage. Now you're getting it, the chicken man said. Thomas dashed to the bonfire, his monstrican tearing through the dirt alongside him. Whip swing and the handle came down, spiky and striking Derek's head with a thuck. He crumpled to the ground and fell silent. Kenny stood, eyes wide, breathing panicked breaths. Thomas rolled the barrel out of the flames. The monstrican attacked, shredding through Derek's clothes. Thomas dropped to the ground and bit into the boy's finger, showing his monstrican what they ate. Kenny found his voice and let out a shriek. He grabbed the fallen gardening tool and started swinging. Thomas hadn't noticed at first. He was still feeding, still acting the part. By the time he did notice, two of his monsterkin were already lying lifelessly in the dirt. No! he shouted, but what came out was a roar so ferocious he made himself flinch. Kenny stumbled backward at the sound. Thomas scrambled to his feet and lunged for the boy just as Derek's parents appeared on the porch behind him. Thomas ran home, dodging the tear-blurred trees. He shot out of the forest into the knackery yard and didn't see the coyote trap until it snapped shut on his foot. He collapsed, howling in pain, feeling the bones snap. His shoe grew warm with blood. Out from the house stomped Rick's silhouetted figure holding a shotgun. The monsterkin encircled him, raking their claws through the dirt. Rick took a step back. Thomas let out a ferocious rasp. The monsterkin took it as a battle cry. Maybe it was. They pounced. Then the sky cracked, flashing white. A 
A single shot was all it took. The last of the monsterkin were now strewn in gory pieces across the yard. Thomas wailed, but couldn't hear his own voice over the ringing in his ears. Rick loomed above, readying his gun for one last shot. Thomas was still wearing the monster pelt. He tried to speak, but again rasped hopelessly. He pulled back on his cowl so Rick could see him, see that he wasn't a coyote, wasn't a monster. The pelt was stuck. He tried again, pulled hard on his horns, but it remained affixed. It had become part of him. Seconds or minutes passed. Thomas couldn't tell how long. Time itself was breaking, slow and fast moving together. The stars blurred and separated. His whimpering became quiet. The night grew colder. Then a second silhouette was there. His mother. And then the air around her rippled, flickered, and she was gone. Another flicker, and there she stood again. Time flowed along an erratic current, flickering forward and somehow, impossibly, backward. Rick aimed his shotgun. Up, down, up, flicker. Slowly, Thomas's mother reached out, placed her hand on the barrel and pushed it away. Then she said something. Thomas couldn't hear the words past the ringing in his ears, but she had spoken. Actually spoken. She could see beyond the pelt. Rick shoved her aside. She got up. Went down. Up. Down. Flicker. She lunged for the barrel, screaming, words muffled as if underwater. With one giant hand, Rick sent her collapsing to the dirt. Thomas could no longer hear his mother's muffled words. For a minute, a second, an hour, Rick stared down the barrel of his gun. Then the sky flashed white again. Time was a lake, and Thomas a skipping stone. A moment ago he had been on the bus. Now he was in class. His teacher was barking at him to pay attention. But hadn't he been here, now, before? He blinked another sleepy blink and the clock above the blackboard skipped forward five whole minutes. Another blink and he was on his back, surrounded by a cosmos of glowing things, listening to his monsterkin's tiny motors as they slept inside the crate. He blinked again, and it was years earlier. His mother was flipping through her dictionary, looking for a new word of the day. Could he control it now? Blink. They had just moved to the knackery. Rick was letting him pet one of the pigs. Blink. Thomas stared between two glowing red irises. He did the brave thing this time. He lowered the crossbow. Backward. Forward. Backward. Forward. Cycling through moments, then to the present. His leg ignited with a pain like fire. As the white faded... Colored spots began to swim around his vision. Behind them, a single silhouette remained. His mother stood, backdropped by the moon. In her hand, a cracking club. Rick lay on the ground, unmoving. The hot fire pain burned deeper into Thomas's leg. He squeaked out what little voice he had left. His mother ran to him, kneeling in the dirt. She began speaking the starry background framing her face. Time stopped at this moment. Could he control it now? He could only hear the muffled sound of her words and the silence between them, but it was enough. Could he control it? He didn't know. But he held on to this moment, slowly sinking into the lake of time.
That was Drew Rogers' Monsterkin, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an inspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and The Cursed Inn Podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts? Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invite the darkness in with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.